Galatians 6, 1 to 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Heavenly Father, boy, you know us so well. You know how our inclination is to be innately selfish, ourselves first, last, and always. So you've given us these words to remind us we're here to bear one another's burdens, and we're here to do good to one another. And sometimes people can be pretty annoying, and we don't want to do good for them. But if we think about it, look how annoying and worse we were to you. We are to you. And look at the burden that your son bore on the cross for us and the good you've done to us and for us. And you always love us, no matter what. So please help us all to remember these words and to do good to one another, to remember how good it feels to do good. And please bless our pastor this morning as he delivers your words to us. Bless us that we may open our hearts and minds so that these words can embed themselves in us so that we will use them and not miss opportunities to do good for one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Faith. So there's a term in sports and in uh, startups that is unicorn. It's a mythical creature, something that is uh, so rare that you think it doesn't necessarily exist. And then you see it and you go, whoa, that's a unicorn. Right now, in our very lifetime, at this very moment, there is a unicorn in baseball. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Otani, Shohei Otani, one of, if not the greatest to ever play the game. One of, if not the best pitchers, and right now, almost every statistic he is leading is a hitter. Now, if you, like me, 20 years ago, knew nothing or cared nothing about baseball, I always started liking baseball because my youth pastor, Anthony Garcia, did, and I thought it'd be a great point to connect, so I'd get the paper out and check the Chicago Cubs scores and go to youth group and be like, oh, the Cubs, uh, they did all right, huh? But it, they, it was mostly them being terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So commiserating. So Otani, uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, to ever do it. Best hitter and pitcher currently, um, better statistically than Babe Ruth, and he's doing both at the same time, where Babe Ruth was mostly uh, pitching and then hitting. Yet, 
Shohei has not a single game in his last five years in the postseason, and if you don't make the postseason, then you're not going to make the championships. In the words of my good friend and former youth pastor Anthony Garcia, the Angels are yet again wasting another generational talent. He said that to our friend Harrison, who is a lifetime diehard Angels fan, and he loves to uh, rub that in Harrison's face. Not only Mike Trout, but now Shohei Otani is just being wasted on mediocrity. The unicorn, though they are unique and special, cannot do it alone. And so it is with the Christian faith. There's a few throughout history that pop out as exceptional followers of Christ, the Apostle Paul being one of them. You can create your own list of who those might be. Augustine I got on there. Uh, maybe the Teresa, St. Teresa of Avila, Mother Teresa, um, Calvin. There's, there's a handful there. They even didn't go alone. And as we near the close of Galatians, and Paul is doing what he normally does in his letters, and that is putting together some life instruction to this gospel-saturated letter, he is showing clearly and plainly to them that as they read this letter and then embark and continue in this journey of faith as the church together, they could not do it alone. I could not go through this life alone. You see in verse 1 and 2, there is this bear one another's burdens. If you did not know, uh, there are 59 unique one another's in the New Testament. You can't live the Christian life solo. There is no solo act of Christianity. 59 one another's. I'll send them to you this week in the email, whole list of them all. Somewhat of... If you were here last week with Anthony, he talked about life being a bit of a struggle bus. This gives us a little bit of a how-to for the struggle bus. And maybe you, like me, are looking at these instructions and you're like, ha, huh, finally, something simple, accessible, you can implement it. It's not this uh, deep, complex theology. And just tell me what to do already. I don't need uh, all the background, all that. Just tell me what to do and I'll go do that. Well, here's your treat. But before we get there, there's a couple errors that I want to avoid. The first is this, that often when Christians and pastors specifically look at uh, the ethics or the morality that is found in the New Testament, the here's how you're supposed to live, here's what you're supposed to do, what can often happen is those instructions are elevated at the expense of the gospel. It's almost like an untethering in the emphasis. Like, okay, we've been on shore and we're all familiar with the instruction. We're going to, you know, take away this anchor. And now you're out on your own and you get out to sea and you're sick. And you're like, what do I do now? And everybody's vomiting off the side. That's not good when you untether from the gospel. I, I remember years ago visiting a, a Bible church and uh, the pastor was giving a teaching on giving in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, how God loves a cheerful giver. And he explained the passage great. Uh, I understood what a cheerful giver was, what the Greek words were behind it, but then it hit me near the end that the, the pastor had failed to mention uh, 2 Corinthians 8 all the way back to Genesis and in 2 Corinthians 10 all the way through Revelation. And so it was just this teaching on why you need to give that was untethered from the gospel, and really any how-to guru could have done the same exact thing. When I was in seminary, one of the professors would often go, if a Mormon can teach this message that you're about to give, that's a problem. 
If it's merely instruction without gospel, that's a problem. And so I'm hoping to avoid that. Because what happens when we elevate ethics at the expense of the gospel, it creates Pharisees of us or it just crushes you. So some of you are, are, you know, maybe you're a firstborn or a real go-getter type A and you're like, give me the instruction. I'm going to knock this out of the park. I'm going to get an A on the test. And then you become inflated with pride. And others of you, maybe you know yourself a little bit better. You know, you're the second, third, fourth kid on the list. And you're like, I'm just not, it's not going to happen. And so you're like, I'm terrible. Again, we're looking to avoid that. Part of that, I think, in the history of the church comes from the response to the wildness that is out in the world. The, the world will act in a fool. And we're like, well, that's not the way of Jesus. Here's how you're supposed to live. But again, when you divorce that from the gospel, there's a problem. The equal and opposite error uh, is to just ignore the instruction in the New Testament altogether. Uh, So this is somewhat of a response and a pendulum swing from overly elevating morals and ethics to going, well, find your own way. Love Jesus and do what you want to do. And in a failure to instruct on what life with Jesus together looks like. This comes out of a bit of a biblical illiteracy that is rampant today where people just don't simply know what scripture teaches about life and ethics coming from attachment to Christ and his community. To quote the late, great Tim Keller, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, the the very beginning, but it's the A to Z. And so the practicalities are meant to be saturated and infused with Christ's presence and his power motivating then life together. And so that ought to hopefully prevent deflation upon failure that leads to disappointment and discouragement and burnout or inflation upon success or growth that our pride and our ego get bigger and we look down on other people who haven't mastered whatever little niche of morality that that we've conquered. That's what often happens. It's not a wide array. It's like, I've mastered this one particular thing, and now everybody else is going to be judged according to this standard. It's not the way of Jesus. So how you know whether or not I've done that is if by the end of all this, you go, Jesus is great, and I want to follow him together with his people. That's how we know. If we've been captivated yet again by a vision of Christ, of who he is and the grace that he offers to people, then we go, yeah. If I just give you five how-tos, you go, there, five things to do this week, I've failed. And you can tell me about it later. Right, David? You going to get me afterwards? No? (laughs) I just got to stare down. Anyways. So. These passages instruct the church and protect against the overly idealistic assumptions of utopia. How many of you have ever looked at the church today and go, and this is natural, I'm not going to make fun of you, but just go, uh, I wish we could go back to the early church. Anybody felt that way? Like it's too complicated, there's too much drama, let's just go back to the beauty and simplicity. I felt that way. The, The thing that the Bible often does, though, is it goes, well, here's how it actually was. It doesn't paint an unrealistic vision of utopia. Uh, Paul in verse 26 said that we have to avoid becoming conceited, again, inflated in our pride or ego, or uh, envying, that is deflated in in having a pride by comparison kind of thing going on. We have to avoid that bipolar, and this is how we do that, is through life together. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Being a pastor, I've probably had a little bit more of a front seat to this than, than some of you. People coming into a church and we all have our ideals and our list of what that might look like. And those ideals and preferences are particular, they're, they're fine to have. We all have them. That's not a bad thing. The problem is when we place that in front of real people and prioritize our preferences over real people who are in front of us, that destroys community and can often happen. When we place our preferences in front of the real people who uh, God has called us to love and be loved by, it destroys community. And so this text guides us in the work and wonder of life as God's people. And he says this in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So immediately in verse 1, we see that there will be times where people are caught up in sin and in need of grace and restoration. That, that word transgression could also be translated like blunder, caught up, uh, to be trapped. And there's a clear call to those in that place, in that space, which we struggle with because of this thing that we all have called uh, pride and projection. I mean, how many of you just want to lead with, yeah, here's where I messed up, here's where I need help, here's where I fall short, here's where uh, I don't have it all together. None of us. It's kind of like, I think many of us have this uh, inner, like, little kid that knows we're in trouble or have made a mess, and rather than just going straight to get help, uh, we try to fix it on our own. So I have three boys. And um, two out of those three struggle with perpetual bloody noses, especially this season. And one of them, who will remain nameless, uh, is adamant on cleaning it up himself. And uh, it's like, I got it, Dad. I cleaned it all up. And you go in the bathroom, and it looks like a murder scene. <laughs> okay, good shot. Next time, just ask for help. I'm not going to be mad at you. We'll do this together. Many of us live that kind of life on our own. I got this. And, and what happens inevitably is we don't because God never placed that expectation on us to begin with, that you have to figure it out all on your own. No, he's placed us with one another. And so Paul says, you who are spiritual, which can sound somewhat intimidating, Again, some of us eager, well, I'm a spiritual Navy SEAL. I'll jump right in and help you. Like, maybe not. Or others, again, they're like, I don't know if I'm spiritual. And he's not talking about Navy SEALs, but simply ordinary followers of Jesus who are pursuing uh, the fruit of the Spirit at work in life, that are looking to be led by God and uh, with his help, be helpers to one another. And the work is this, restoring that one. In the Greek, the word is used of the disciples that were mending their nets, that were fixing what was broken back to its original intent. In other first century Greek writings, it was used in orthopedics of resetting a broken bone, which means that process is often painful and we need care in doing that. With a proper self-understanding, 
being aware of our own pride or the fact that we could get sucked into somebody else's sin. And so you see the care and intention that Paul puts in this, that we are to share these burdens with one another. And then he uses this word, I think, that is a play with the Judaizers that were there. The Judaizers in this letter again and again, Paul is addressing that we wanted to heap the law on top of God's people. And he's saying this, by bearing one another's burdens, by restoring one another in Christ's love, that is the law of Christ. That's what God in Christ is calling you to. Not this law that is performance to uh, put yourself together in God's eyes, but in Christ and through the gospel to love your neighbor who's stuck in sin. Now, I think, unfortunately, for many of us, this is unfamiliar. This is not what restoration has looked like. One, because we're reticent and hesitant to ask for it, or two, and sometimes worse, is that when we ask for help, it comes across as very unhelpful. And often the church is meant to be a place for broken, I forget who says it, it's, it's uh, meant to be a hospital for sinners, not something for the saints. That's what the church is to be, and we often don't experience it as such. And this was me just having a little bit of fun this week. I've created five archetypes of what not to do and what's often done. And I've sought in this to uh, color it out a little bit and have, so I think I've avoided all of your names um, in this, and, and you'll see. So, so first, we don't experience restoration. Here's what we experience. Uh, busy body Bertha. Busy body Bertha. Uh, Bertha is the one who meddles in other people's business. Uh, and, and it's kind of like she treats it like a buffet, like just what looks interesting, not necessarily interested in the, the full person or human, but like I'll take a little, I'll leave a little, and is kind of just gossipy, busybody, meddling, and not helping. Busybody Bertha says, tell me more, but doesn't actually engage or help. Then there's prideful Percy. Prideful Percy has an inflated ego, and when you are caught up in sin, when you are left with a blunder, Prideful Percy is the expert at uh, kind of inflating his chest and looking down and saying, how could you? Prideful Percy, like I said earlier, he has it all together. He's the one that has mastered whatever his expertise in the Christian life is and judges everybody else according to that standard, forgetting uh, the whole thing about humility and love. Or maybe you are or you have met excuse maker Ethel. Um, excuse maker Ethel, she does everything to avoid the truth and accountability. When you come with your sin or your struggle, it's kind of dismissed like everybody does that. Again, maybe lacking some biblical literacy. Uh, just wants to, again, this is all <laughs> starts with living at the surface and not wanting to engage real people in real life and applying the gospel to that place. There's uh, Fix-It Frankie. You may have experienced him. Jumps in to help, but kind of like uh, an untrained welder, he gets burned and blinded, uh, either you or him. Fix-It Frankie is the person that you come to, and maybe just to tell your story, and they jump in very quickly with advice. I know how to help. Have you listened to this podcast? Have you read this book? Have you watched this YouTube clip? 
this will fix your problems. And again, maybe those things could be helpful, but when people jump straight to solutions rather than uh, community and understanding and love, again, it's detached from the gospel and, and doesn't help. And then finally, a little bit with excuse maker Ethel, uh, there's ignore Igor. Perhaps um, has engaged and been hurt, and so ignore Igor is content to uh, be a little bit of a participant, but is just simply going to live on the surface and ignore any problems, any disagreements, any sin, anything, because ignorance is bliss. That's what often, I'm not saying all of you are like these people, but that's often what we can experience when we find ourselves in a place of needing help and we become somewhat hesitant to engage in that. There is a better way in Jesus. And we see that not just in what Jesus said, but how he came alongside and healed and helped sinners. And my encouragement to you all and myself would be re-engage with all the Gospels and see not just simply what Jesus said, but how he handled people who are caught up in sin. One of the most famous cases is from John chapter 8, verse 1 through 12, where there's the woman, the woman who is caught in adultery, the very act, and the Pharisees bring him before Jesus and say, we should stone this lady. That's what the law says. Let's kill her. And there's so many like, aspects to that story and nuance of it. You're like, wait, how did you all know a bunch of peeping toms looking in on this and what and instead of jesus engaging them he goes slowly and lovingly and holds up the mirror to all these prideful percies see it is biblical um <laughs> he holds up the mirror and begins writing in the sand and he engages this woman as all of these pharisees and legalists leave and he says, where are those who would condemn you? They're gone. Go and sin no more, he tells her. Or, or you think about Peter after one of the worst days of his life, denying Jesus three times after he said he would never. He goes to bat with the sword on Malchus's ear. I'm here for you, Jesus. Deny, deny, deny that Jesus restores him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter, like many of us, gets easily distracted and he goes, okay, Jesus, yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you, but what about John? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Lovingly, patiently, kindly, deeply engaging with people where they are in the midst of their sin to lead them towards life. Henry Dowen in his book, Wounded Healer, says Jesus was a revolutionary who did not come, become an extremist since he did not offer an ideology but himself. And so we see Jesus, we receive his love. We're to walk in step with his spirit and live with this kind of love towards one another. A gospel-saturated, humble helping kind of love. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, what you've seen in, is in his plan, in his providence, this is how he moves us forward in life, is through people that are attempting to embody Jesus to one another. Like we just sang, 
I don't know how you'll make a way, but I know you will. And that's true of so many of our circumstances right now, people we're praying for, or hurdles we're facing ourselves. But for many of us, we can look back and go, oh, the way that God has made a way historically has been through people. Praying, helping, coming alongside, encouraging. You can map that out in your life, going, I was in this situation, but God, through these people, surrounded me, helped me, encouraged me, upheld me. Again and again and again, God uses people in those places. And pride in ourselves to keep us from asking for help will destroy ourselves and community. Or, or pride in thinking that we have to reach some certain standard in order to participate will also destroy community. And so we need an accurate view of our own need and fragility in it all. And Paul says that throughout Galatians chapter 6, and he says it again in Galatians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we have to let a realistic understanding of ourselves inform how we relate to one another. And then another thing that Paul points us to in all of this is the fact that one day we are all going to face Jesus and to allow that last day inform the everyday. It, it seems as though there's almost a contradiction in the text if you pick it up. He says, uh, bear one another's burdens. So share, care, love, restore, do all of that. And then in verse 5, he says, for each will have to bear his own load. You go, which one is it? Well, there's two unique Greek words within it, and so it's really both. The burden is that of a heavy weight, uh, of something that is holding us back or that we're caught within, whereas a load is that of a backpack. John Stott, uh, like he does, being the expert, explains it simply. He says, there's one burden that we cannot share, and that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours. And so, as we go through this life, and, and Paul does it here with the imagery of, of weight and burdens and backpacks, uses other imagery elsewhere, but he, he speaks about the fact that we will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus, that one day after this life comes the next and we face Jesus, that that day informs how we live this day. So the call is out of love for Christ and one another. We are to be a community and a family of gentleness and restoration. And then he transitions in verse 6. Let one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. That's many pastors' uh, life verse and favorite verse. Because you all are supposed to share with those who teach. Uh, most of that speaks to and is a justifier for why pastors can be paid. Not all do. I am. So is Anthony. Here's a verse for it. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, there were some commentaries where I was like, oh, you're, you're making a really big case for yourself. Um, but yeah, there, as I looked at this particular scripture, it, to me it just spoke of the mutuality and relationship that's supposed to be with pastors and people. Uh, that there is this levelness of uh, sharing, teaching, instruction, and life together, not this uh, elevation of pastors above people, that there's this integration together in life. And then, 
in some of the most famous verses, or at least phrases, in the New Testament, we come towards Paul pointing people uh, in this church to have a long view. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will um, uh, from the flesh reap corruption, but one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So you reap what you sow, one of the most famous phrases from all of scripture that's used commonly today. But notice how it starts. Number one, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Why does Paul put that clause in there before he goes into this metaphor? I think there's at least two reasons. Number one is that deception is part of the human condition, that we are very prone to being deceived. It it seems as though All of our waywardness in life comes, you can trace it all back to Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent comes into the story and says, did God really say? Fundamentally, it is fallen, broken creatures, made in the image of God, but broken due to sin, there is this propensity to deception, to not fully trust what God says in his word and in this world. And so, Again, if we're talking about having a realistic understanding of ourselves, I and we are prone to being deceived. I'm probably not the only one that is that of the camp, like, just tell me what I want to hear, right? And if it's not what I want to hear, then I'll just filter it out or justify it or twist it or whatever to create. But I guess it's just me. The second thing, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, is that as he instructs people about this concept of sowing and reaping, what can often happen for followers of Jesus is we attempt to do what God has told us to do, but when our timelines don't line up uh, when it comes to the outcome, there's a special temptation to lose trust and shift focus. So you come in on a Sunday, Or maybe you're a youth group kid and it's Wednesday night and your youth pastor gives a really inspiring message. Mine gave a handful of those in my time. (laughs) And you go, I'm really motivated right now to do better, to not sin, to go all out for Jesus. And that's on Wednesday. And then Thursday hits and you're at school and there's lots of things to get you off track. You go, ah, but God, I thought this would be a lot easier. Or Jesus, fine, I'll, I'll trust you with this thing, but I want a certain outcome that I have in my mind. And when it doesn't happen in our own timeline, in our own way, when our lives don't necessarily line up how we anticipated, there's a special temptation to lose trust and shift focus. And so Paul is rooting these people in a concept, in a metaphor, in an image that is to help them in life. And it's that of sowing and reaping. And he says, if you sow to the flesh, that is, and you can read again in chapter five, the the works of the flesh are evident and gives this huge list. If we live to our flesh, to ourselves, to life outside of the word and the will and the way of God, when we do that, we will get corruption. That word can mean disintegration. It's this breaking, this crumbling, this dissolving of how God meant 
our own lives, hearts, bodies to be, when we don't live according to that in Christ, there's a breaking apart. That sin by its nature breaks and distorts what God had made and intended to be beautiful. But if we sow to the spirit of the spirit, we will reap eternal life. And when the Bible talks about eternal life and its implications are yes for the forever, that is life after this one, But in Jesus, there's an overlap that the eternal breaks into the everyday. That's what Jesus says in John 10 when he says, I have come that they may have life and life abundantly to the full. And he says, I believe it's in John 17, 3, the high priestly prayer, that eternal life is this. I'm winging it here. This is eternal life. Thank you, Sunday school. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we... Often when we think of eternal life, we just go, oh yeah, what happens after we die? And Christ says, yeah, there is this eternal life after you die, yes. But that has implications in an overlap now. And the gateway to eternal life is Christ. And so in knowing Christ, we can experience, we can taste, we can take part in this promise here and now. Dallas Willard says this, that Jesus offers himself as God's doorway into the life that is truly life. Confidence in him leads us today, as in other times, to become his apprentices in eternal living. And then he rephrases John 10. Those who come through me will be safe, Jesus said. They will go in and out and find all they need. I have come into their world that they may have life and life to the limit. So Jesus invites us to experience eternal life now with him and one another. So, if you sow to the Spirit, you live into God's intention for life, from that, you will reap eternal life. And that sounds really nice right now. But by this afternoon, that's all going to be tested. For you parents, as soon as you pick up your kids, it's going to be tested. As soon as you try to figure out what's for lunch and the person you're trying to coordinate with that, uh, you know, slow rolls you and is like, I don't know. Just pick a place. Again, my own stuff is coming out here. All of this will be tested. And the good news is that scripture knows us well. That's where verse 9 comes in. Don't grow weary of doing good. For in due season you will reap if you do not give up. There's a promise to reap, so do not lose heart. It's not asking us to be idealistic or unrealistic to life and people in the slow process of learning Christ in real life. The Bible is not idealistic or unrealistic. That's why there's these encouragements. If you are attempting to love people, who they are, where they are, and if you are being loved by people, who you are and where you are, it is tiresome work. You will be burned, you will be hurt, you will be misunderstood and maligned. And the temptation is to go, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, me and you alone, forget these people. People are the worst. I remember when we stepped out to start our first church in 2011, left the church we'd grown up in, 
oh, this is going to be perfect. It's going to be so good. We're not going to do all those mistakes that that other church did. And we got together with one other couple and their three kids at our home for the very first time. You know, sweet, talked, prayed, worshiped. Did all the things we were going to do perfectly. And my two-year-old, who will not remain nameless, it was you, Lincoln, wherever you are. Where is he? You. Takes an Etch-a-Sketch, a mini one, to the back of the head of their middle child, right as they're leaving. Just tomahawked it. Boom! And that fledgling church in that moment was almost split in half. As that husband calls me the next day and goes, I don't know if we can do that if your son is going to be terrorizing my daughter. And he was serious. I was like, dude, he's two. What? Like, that's going to happen. And I'm not teaching him to do that, bro. And I go, Lincoln, you can't ruin this church for us. I didn't do that. That's how I felt. (laughs) And so anytime we have these ideals of what it could and really should look like, they're going to be dashed because two-year-olds exist. I feel like I got to pay Lincoln 20 bucks afterwards to (laughs) make up for it. So how do we keep after it when it's difficult in ourselves with with others? And I think what this text has guided me towards is this, that, and I've said this before, this is one of my shticks, is that scripture intentionally uses agricultural terms, not um, technological terms. So we're so used to a speed and pace that is really unique in human history with how much we are faced with every single day, how much we're expected to do and accomplish. Um, the ex- Just, again, the, the speed and broadness of what we deal with. I think in a lot of ways, we're learning to adjust, but it's also dehumanizing in many ways. And so scripture doesn't speak about our, our bandwidth or our download speeds. It's not talking about gigabytes and now terabytes. It doesn't do that. It's talking about seeds and soil and watering, which takes time. And so when we remind ourselves of that, that that there's a certain framework through which we ought to experience life and people, and that is a patient one that takes time, we're reoriented to go at a different pace. We, again, look in the mirror and go, I haven't changed Overnight, this has been a long continuing process and there's so much more to change and be transformed in. And I'm so grateful that there's been people alongside me in that long journey pointing me towards Christ. And so it is, as we engage with other people, are you willing to take the long view? Are you willing to do what Christ says in in the manner in which he says it and leave the results up to him? Some years you'll have a crop. And it will be abundant. And there will be fruit and joy and growth. And at other times it's seasons of of pruning and wondering and going, why didn't this produce? Why didn't this come to fruition? And you may not on this side of eternity ever have the answers for that disappointment. But will you continue to do good as you have opportunity? Will you continue to prioritize the people of God over and above yourself? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Faith 
Faith could have preached this message, and she basically did in her prayer. God, we struggle with this. God, we are selfish, but because of who you are, because of how you handled us, because of your posture towards us in our sin, in our folly, in our foolishness, the love and kindness that you showed us through the cross and resurrection, let that be our fuel. Let that be our vision. Let that be our standard. And, and so if you're in sin, if you're stuck, if you're burdened, if you're weighed down, this is why we pray for one another every single week and give time and space and opportunity for it. Would you receive that gift? And if you're on the other end of caring for somebody, would you do it with gentleness? Would you do it with care? Would you do it with kindness? Would you do it with the mind and heart of Jesus? You can see the progression of this letter that it is all about Jesus. It's about his truth, it's about his cross, and that informs and frames and shapes how we relate to one another. And that is that we are to actually know and be known by one another, and we are to take the long view and have a vision of what that might look like, to build this family with imperfect people over a period of time experiencing life with Jesus and inviting others into that beautiful story. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that you have gifted us with your word and you've gifted us with one another. God, I don't know the specifics, but I know we all carry wounds in from our own sin and being sinned against that uh, many of us have been mishandled by pastors or people and carry shame and hesitation when it comes to getting help in our need. And so I pray that you, Jesus, would one, uh, give us a new, more holistic, compelling vision of your son and that from seeing Jesus, who he is and how he handled people, that we would learn from him, that he is gentle and he's lowly, that he provides rest, would we be those kind of people for one another? And that as you build that within the life of this church, we might continue to see those around us that, that need you. And that we would sow into those lives truth and grace. And that God, you'd continue building your church in your way for your purpose here in the world. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.